0: We're going to talk about Lesson 60, the captain of the ship. And um, what I did in your notes is the end of Lesson 59, obviously. You can read about the kingdom, the seventh kingdom parable of the dragnet, which is a pair with the second parable about the wheat and the tares. Remember how I said they're parables? And it's all about the judgment at the end time, and except instead of the wheat being separated from the tares, it's the good fish being separated from the bad fish. The Lord talks about the judgment at the end of the age. He talks again, of course, about hell. But uh, you can read that in your notes. So it's we did get the Mystery Kingdom parables done in three lessons. And I also put the eighth parable, which really doesn't have to do with the Mystery Kingdom per se, but it is in Matthew chapter 13. It is the Lord's parable of the householder, which basically pairs up with the first parable in that it tells the disciples about their responsibility. In the first parable, they were responsible to sow the seed. In the parable of the householder, he basically said, and why don't we read those? That would be a good way to just go over it real quickly. But um, he's telling them, it's go to Matthew 13. Let's look at verses uh, 47 to 52. But in the last parable, he he basically says, now that you've heard all this new information about the new form of the kingdom, you're responsible as a householder, the head of the house, you're responsible to the whole world for this new news, plus the old news that you already knew. So let's read um, the parable of the dragnet in verses 47 to 50. Where the Lord said again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. The good fish they kept, the bad fish was thrown away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, which, of course, is hell, where shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you see how that pairs up with the parable of the wheat and the tares? All right, and then, verse 51, Jesus saith unto them, meaning his disciples, Have ye understood all these things? What would you say if he asked you (laughs) after all those parables, some of which were very confusing, you have to admit. And they said unto him, Yea, Lord, But, you know, we can kind of know they probably didn't understand it all, which we will see in our lesson today. All right, then verse 52, he gives them the parable of the householder. He says, Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Again, there he is talking about their responsibility as heads of the household of the whole world to share with the world all the old and the new things that they had learned. So I'll read your notes. And we're going to march on to lesson number 60, the captain of the ship. Let's pray first. Father God, we do thank you for this time of year, the beautiful spring. Again, we are reminded, of course, this week in particular about your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that you are the resurrection and the life, and that he that believeth in you, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the empty tomb. May we truly be witnesses for you this week as we tell and share with others about the resurrection and the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we just pray that we could feast on the bread of life, the, the manna from heaven, and may we never be satisfied with just the crumbs from the table, but may we dig deeper so that we might not just get the milk and the bread, but also the meat of your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, now you were in Matthew. Let's flip over to Mark chapter 4 and look at verses 35 to 41. What we have before us in this next event and miracle in the chronological life of the Lord Jesus is an illustration of the Christian life itself. This event, of course, really happened, so it's more than the symbolic teaching that we have had in the Mystery Kingdom parables. This is a true life experience. It really happened. It's a miracle teaching. This particular miracle is an illustration of life itself. We could say it's a miniature picture of our lives viewed as a voyage across a sea. We're on a voyage We could picture our voyage of life as a voyage across the sea. Now, some days we encounter sunny skies, like today. Beautiful day outside, isn't it, today? Some of you are going to go home and work in your gardens, work in your yards. Beautiful day. Sometimes we encounter sunny skies. Sometimes we encounter those stormy skies, don't we? Stormy weather. So, that's what we're going to be looking at as we look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to fifty. 35 to 41, this account is also found in Matthew 8, verses 8 and then verses 23 to 27, and a parallel account very shortly given, succinctly given over in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, but Mark gives it most completely, so we're going to look at Mark's gospel. We haven't been in Mark in a while, have we? So let's see what Mark has to tell us about um, this next event in the Lord's life after he finished giving the Mystery Kingdom parables. It says in verse 35, and, oh my goodness, look at this, the same day when the even was come, okay, it's evening now, he saith unto them, his disciples, of course, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. That's where my maiden name appears in the, in the Bible. Caravi, my maiden name was Caravas, and it means little ship. There it is, other little ships, other little (laughs) caravasses. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Over in Matthew's account, it says that the ship was covered with the waves. And in Luke, it says that they were filled with water, and they were in jeopardy. Of their lives, it was, da- it was a dangerous storm. All right, verse 38. And he, who was the he? Jesus was in the hinder or the stern part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Oh, I love this. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, Lord, I pray I can do justice to this lesson. All right, as I said, we have a miniature picture of our lives as we cross this life as a voyage. Now, the determining factor in the success of our voyage across the Sea of Life, whether we sink, in other words, or whether we arrive safely to our destination, depends, as we see here, upon one and only one major criteria, and that is who the captain of our ship is. There's only one captain who can safely and soundly, securely, sufficiently, sovereignly steer us to the other shore. Only one. There's only one captain also who can calm our souls while we are in those storms that hit us during this life. And who is that captain? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who can defeat all of our enemies. We'll see as we study this that there was an enemy that sent this particular storm. He's the only one who can defeat all of our enemies, including ourselves. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. So are you in a storm at this particular time in your life? We say, you know, it's it's not really funny, but we say that um, you can really divide humanity up into three categories. Of course, just two. (laughs) But in this case, we're going to say three. You're either just coming out of a storm, or you're in the middle of a storm, or guess what? There's a storm waiting for you up the road a piece. So if you're in a storm, this lesson is for you. If you're not in a storm, this lesson is for you, because if you live a little bit longer, <laughs> you're going to have a storm. Life, man is born to trouble as what? As the sparks fly upward. There's just no way to avoid the storms of life because we live in a sin-cursed world. Now, this account tells us that there were other ships, other little kravi out there, along with the discipleship. So what does that tell us? All humanity is on this voyage of life together. But the special thing about the discipleship is who was with them. They had a special captain with them. They had Jesus on board their ship. If you have made that most important decision of all eternity to ask Jesus to be the captain of your ship, to be at the helm of your heart, then whatever storms life may send your way, he will, you have a guarantee, he will safely guide you across this voyage of life to the safe harbor on the other side. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Sometimes it's the only promise that keeps us going. So the Lord now remember the setting. He had just finished giving the mystery parables discourse in Matthew 13. And at this point in their schooling, the disciples were probably feeling very superior in their spiritual knowledge. I mean, after all, think about what he's told them lately. They're greater than John the Baptist. Uh, They certainly knew that they were greater than their esteemed spiritual leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees because Jesus was always rebuking them, and they had just concluded that Jesus did his works in the power of uh, Beelzebub. They knew things now, after he- hearing about the mystery kingdom, they knew things that none of the Old Testament prophets and kings and all the other great guys like Isaiah and even Moses, that they had known, they knew, they knew now more than, than all of the Old Testament wonderful great saints. And they were probably even feeling pretty invincible. After all, they had Jesus with them. And he could do anything, couldn't he? He could heal any disease. He could do, I mean, you know, as long as Jesus was with them, they didn't have to worry about getting sick or falling off a cliff and breaking their neck or whatever because he could raise the dead. They had seen him actually raise the widow's son from from the dead. And so they were probably feeling pretty superior. But what they did not understand is what so many Christians also do not understand, and that is, that is one thing to learn a spiritual truth, and quite another thing to put that spiritual truth that we have learned into practice. True faith needs to be tested before it can be trusted. True faith must be tested before it can be trusted. Our old enemy, Satan does not care one single bit how much you and I might study our Bibles, how much we might do our homework assignments, do our homework questions, how much scripture we might memorize, if we only learn and do not apply what we learn to our lives. You know, we must not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Application is so very important. Purely academic truth is not at all dangerous to Satan's scheme. So, the Lord had been teaching his men great truths, a lot of great truths. And at the end of his teaching on the new form of the kingdom of heaven, he asked them, as we saw over in Matthew, if he had understood, to which they responded, Yea, Lord. Yes, Lord, we understand. So, then on the evening, as we found out from Mark 4, 35, on the evening of the same busy day, that we have been looking at for weeks now he gave them a practical test to see how much they really understood they said they understood but now he's going to put their knowledge to the test he was going to see if all that they had been witnessing and hearing from him had actually matured their faith in his person and in his power the whole purpose after all of hearing the word of God and studying the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're doing, and studying his miracles, and studying his words, his teachings, is to do what? It's to produce faith in us that's real when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road, or where the ship meets the water, we could say. It's to produce faith that is real when it comes to the way that we face and live our lives. The best way to not only test faith, But to stretch it, unfortunately, is through the storms. The best way is through the storms. See, you're in a storm for a reason. (laughs) It is in the storms of life that we are best able to practice the lessons that we have learned from the teachings of God's word. And I, I know from experiences, I'm sure many of you do, that that surely is true. When I am in a storm, I really realize how grounded my faith is and that I truly have built my life on a rock foundation, because otherwise some of these storms would really have sunk me. Right? You say the same thing. So it's in the storms of life that Christ can best demonstrate his sufficiency and his reliability so that we can be dependent on him and so that our faith in him does stretch, it does increase. God, therefore, God in his sovereignty permits the storms to come our way for our own good, really, and for for our own spiritual growth. And this is what we see happen in the lives of the Lord's disciples. The Lord knew that a storm, you think he didn't know that this storm was going to come? No, he, he knew that this storm would come upon them, but he commanded them in a sort of a nice way when he said, let us pass over to the other side. He commanded, that still was a command. Uh, he commanded them to cross over the sea anyway, even though he knew that the storm would come because he's omniscient. Um, he knows the end from the beginning. Why did he allow the storm? Well, because he knew in his divine wisdom that a storm was going to help his disciples to understand a lesson that they did not know that they really had not yet learned. And that lesson is something each of us need to learn ever increasingly. I don't think we ever can really truly fully, we're always increasingly learning this lesson. And that lesson is that Jesus Christ can, can, can be fully trusted. Not only on sunny days when everything is going smooth and well. That's easy. But he can also be trusted fully in the storms of life as well. And don't ever forget that because it is definitely true. So he gives the command, um, verse 35, where he says, Let us Passover, I think it's interesting it says Passover when this is the week of... <laughs> He celebrated the Passover with his men and died on the Passover. He says, let us pass over unto the other side. By now you probably understand why Bible scholars call this day of the Lord's life his busy day. Now remember what other busy day he had in his ministry? It was just like us. Well, at least me. My busy day of the week is Tuesday. And his other busy day was Tuesday of the Passion Week. And do you know what today is? Tuesday of the Passion Week. And we are studying about his other busy day. I don't know what day of the week this other busy day was, but it was certainly busy. Mark began this account by saying, and the same day when the even was come. This is the same day that began when Jesus healed a dumb and deaf demoniac and was then accused of, by the scribes and the, uh, the Pharisees of working his, his miracles in the power of Beelzebub. This is the same busy day in which he then, to, to defend himself, gave, gave three logical, irrefutable arguments as to why he did not do his works in Satan's power. It was the same day he warned against committing the unpardonable sin All this was over in Matthew chapter 12. It was the same day in which he was asked to give a sign of all crazy things, after he'd given so many, and uh, then he gave the prophecy of his own resurrection, which he said would be the sign of what? Jonah. It was the same day that he taught the parable of the empty house. He'd already taught the parable of the divided house, the parable of the strong man. Now he taught the parable of the empty house. And then he was visited, remember, by his family his mother and his brothers and perhaps his sisters who had come to him because they thought he was not in his right mind. All this is the same day. It was also the same day that he walked out to the shores of the Sea of Galilee and taught to the multitudes from a boat. He taught them the first four parables of Matthew 13. And it was also the same day that he then sent the multitude away and took his disciples back into a house and taught them the... The next four parables and interpreted all of the parables for them and all of this was the same day and now finally it's evening the sun is beginning to go down but he still had work to perform so and, and now he's primarily interested in what the multitudes or his disciples primarily interested in his disciples and stretching the faith of those men who will become the responsible householders for the entire world when he's absent during the inter-advent mystery form of the kingdom. So even though he had to have been physically exhausted, and I would throw in mentally exhausted, emotionally exhausted, and you know what? He had just been rejected not only by the official delegation of Israel, he's been rejected by Israel but remember, he was misunderstood by his own family. And his mind, I mean, he's been doing all this teaching. As his humani- in his humanity, he has to be exhausted, every way you can think of being exhausted. And yet, he still has to teach his disciples uh, some things. So he takes his handful of disciples back out to the Sea of Galilee. They've been in the house. They were in the house before, when his family came. Then they went back outside. Then they were back in the house. And now they go back out. And do you think his disciples are exhausted? I'm sure they're exhausted. Also, I mean, it was a hard day for them to see Israel's religious rulers reject him and, and conclude that he had done everything in the power of Satan. That was depressing for them. And then to hear that Satan was going to counter so with tears and all the things that their minds were, you know, how your mind was last week when you're trying to answer your questions on the parables? And they were trying to understand everything he's teaching. It was a very exhausting day for them, too. But what they, they obey. He says, you know, let's go back out to the sea, and they obey. We also find out next time we come back, remember next week we don't have Bible study, but the week after we do, in case your schedules weren't corrected, we do come back the week after, which is the 25th, I think. I'll make sure you're back for that. But we're going to find out, as we look at the next lesson, that he had another purpose to cross over the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't just to teach his disciples some lessons, but he had a couple of demoniacs, madmen, over in the Gadarenes that he had a divine appointment with. And that's a really exciting lesson as we look at the crude, rude dude in the nude. (laughs) So anyway, the disciples are exhausted, the Lord is exhausted, but what is interesting is that the disciples were obedient to the Lord. We don't see them giving any excuses, saying, Oh, Lord, why don't we go in the morning? You know, we're all tired. We know you're tired. Why don't we just spend the night here? They didn't question him. They were obedient. Um, so they got into a ship, and they, they, you know, set off across the sea. Now, what does this, uh, the disciples' obedience tell us about storms? Does it teach us that st- storms are always as in the case of Jonah, a result of disobedience? Does it teach us that? No, because the disciples, unlike Jonah, did exactly what the Lord told them to do. And yet, guess what? They encountered a storm anyway. Some people, like Job's friends, erroneously think that storms only come upon people when they have sinned. Is that true? No. And here's, here's a case in fact. We have uh, a, a biblical example that demonstrates that that is not always the case. Of course, we have others as well, but here's one example that tells us that sometimes, you know, storms are not the result of our own disobedience and we're being chastened. Sometimes they are, the chastening consequence of our own sins. But that's not always true. Sometimes we can bring stor- storms upon ourselves. Who did who did bring a storm upon himself? He got swallowed by a big fish, <laughs> Jonah. <laughs> he, he, uh, you know, some of us are like Jonah. We're very good at bringing storms upon ourselves. Sometimes our attitudes will bring storms. You know, if we're a sour, bitter person, we can bring a lot of storms upon ourselves. We can have bad attitudes about everything about us and everyone about us. We may have a critical or a nagging spirit. We may be a gossip. You know, negative qualities will bring negative results, and we're going to cause storms in our own lives. Many people go through health storms. Physically, you know, physical health storms because they are careless about maintaining their own body. Now, some of our health storms are not our, you know, some of them are just the age process. Well, don't I know that. I didn't sleep much last night. My back is out. It's killing me. But, it's not funny. <laughs> oh, not yet. <laughs> oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> But sometimes, you know, people that encounter some health storms because they have just been careless with their bodies and they have abused their bodies with bad habits, you know, no exercise, you know, the wrong kind of diets and that sort of thing. Many young people go through all kinds of storms because they have made some bad decisions. And that always saddens me. Don't you wish you could just tell them? and that they would listen. It's it's so heartbreaking to see some of the decisions our young people make, and you know that they're going to encounter the consequences of it. Many have gone through storms because of uh, bad decisions that others have made that have affected their own lives. You know, you may not have done anything, but someone close to you does something, or somebody driving down the road could do something that could bring a storm on your life. A lot of storms are the result of being persecuted for being believers. So there's all, all kinds of uh, reasons for storms. But the one we don't want is you know, deliberate disobedience to God definitely like Jonah you know don't bring a storm upon yourself you know when God says go this way Jonah said no I don't like your way I'm going to go my own way and next thing we know he was finding out the hard way (laughs) that you can't disobey God and get away with it you know how you can outline I know I've given you this before but you know how you can outline the book of Jonah very simply God said go Jonah said no God said oh (laughs) very simple outline for Jonah but it is far easier to obey God the first ta- time around. My husband always says, Lord, please help me to learn the lesson so I don't have to have a Jonah experience. Uh, but in this case before us, the storm was not the result of disobedience. There are other reasons for storms, so we need to all remember that and be careful not to, like Job's friends, not to judge others who are in storms, you know, thinking that they're being chastened or something. Um, Sometimes, as we said, the Lord permits storms to stretch and test the faith of those he loves. He may even permit Satan to send a storm into a Christian's life to accomplish this task of faith stretching and testing, as he did with who? Job. Satan brought that storm upon Job, but it was, of course, only through God's permissive will. All right, so, but remember that Satan can only, cannot do anything apart from God, getting God's permission. And as we're going to see, I believe that this particular storm that we're going to be looking at this morning was a result of Satan's work. And uh, we'll see that based on the, the Lord's actual words when he speaks to the storm. So there are two practical truths to glean from just this first verse where it says, uh, the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. Two lessons to learn. First of all, we learn that when Jesus is the captain of our ship, we have a sense of direction to our lives. Where were they going? To the other side. They were going to the other side. When Jesus is our captain, when he is at the helm of our heart, we have direction to our lives. We're not just aimlessly drifting around in life not knowing where we're headed as those in the world are we have a purpose which is to bring glory to our god by our service and our witness to him while we are here on earth isn't it wonderful to have purpose for your life i wanted to read i remember writing this poem years ago called purpose it was about my own life because i used to not have any purpose for my life if you can remember back before you were a christian if you were raised like me in a non-Christian home, it was, it was difficult, especially going off to the university and learning, you know, I just came from a, an amoeba in a mud puddle. You know, where's the purpose to life? So I wrote this poem. I said, Twas a burden in the morning just to rise up out of bed. My humanist philosophy showed emptiness ahead. No real hope can issue from an evolution base Tomorrow's loom with vanity and sorrows yet to face. Religion only yoked me to a system tied with rules, for Satan very cleverly has camouflaged his tools. No purpose for my life seemed clear. Why was I really here? No answers seemed available, which added to my fear. The hedonistic egotist speaks words he thinks so wise. Enjoy yourself, for you are God. There are no hows or whys. But deep within my very soul, a voice kept telling me, there is a purpose and a truth for eyes that want to see. The knowledge God puts into man just simply would not die. Suppression could not conquer it, though often I did try. Oh, why, restraining hope and truth, did I prefer a lie? And why, denying joy that's free, did I prefer to cry? When finally depression had its firm, cold grip on me, God's Spirit reached my heart with truth, and Jesus set me free. Now, when the dark of night gives way to golden, dawning light, I rise to praise and thank my Lord for purpose, plainly bright it no longer is a burden to rise up out of bed i'm born anew in christian love with naught but life ahead that's my testimony poem right there because all of that was true so when christ is at the helm of our heart we have direction we have purpose for our life without him when jesus is not the captain of our ship man floats around with no compass You know he is our compass he is the one who gives us that direction without him you have no compass you have no lighthouse you know that beacon of light that guides you safely Uh, you have no chart what's the chart the word the word of God is our chart and so men without him they just float around they're tossed about with every wind of doctrine and wave of philosophy or religion that come their way so with Christ as captain pilot of our ship, we have direction. Secondly, when he's the captain of our ship, we have a destination. We have a sure destination. Not only a direction, but a destination. The disciples were told to go to the other side. They had a known destination. Before I knew Christ, I, I had no idea what my destination or my direction was. I was miserable. I was fearful. I was worried. I was confused. I couldn't sleep at night. And I really didn't have any purpose to rise out of bed in the morning. Because I had no security. I didn't know the answer to the basic questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? I didn't have those answers. But with Christ we do. We have every answer with Christ. To have true security and inner peace, uh, we need to know the answers to these questions, and Jesus Christ is the answer to all of them. And man can be at peace inner peace within any storm if he knows that he is headed in the right direction because he has his eyes fixed on the beacon of light and who is the light Jesus Christ is the light of the world he's also he's the lighthouse we could call him he's everything isn't he <laughs> he's the captain he's the he's the anchor we'll talk about in a minute he's the boat he's the ark he's the lighthouse he's the chart he's the Compass, all of it. But we can have, if we have our eyes fixed on the beacon of light from the lighthouse, uh, we can have peace even in the middle of, storm, of the storm because we know we're going to surely one day arrive at our final destination, safe and secure. Think about Noah for a minute. If ever a man was in a storm, <laughs> it had to have been no, I don't think this world, well, I know this world has never seen bigger waves. Stronger winds, heavier rains than fell upon his ship. And don't you know that he and his family were tossed about inside of that ark? I mean, I'm sure they fell down many times as it it was rough, very, very rough, beyond what we can even imagine. And so I'm sure that they fell down inside of the ark. Um, But they never fell outside of the ark. They were never thrown overboard, were they? Christ doesn't promise to keep us from the storms, but he does keep us through the storms. He does keep us from going under. When we are truly in Christ, we are in his ark of safety. He himself is the ark, and no, no matter what, how, how severe a storm might be, uh, we, it will not cause us to lose our position in Christ and the, um, our final arriving at our final destination. Now, our direction can get mixed up for a while. We can get off course, can't we? Sometimes in the storms, we can get off course. But the captain of our ship is going to get us on course again. Notice that Christ said to his disciples, let us pass over to the other side. He never leaves his own to cross the storms of life or the final storm, which is death. He never leaves us alone As we cross those storms go through those storms does he 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 said let us he was going to be there with them he is there he will never leave us nor forsake us he is the anchor it says this in hebrews 6 19 and 20 he is the anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that which is within the veil in other words you know on the other side of the veil the holy of holies whither the forerunner is for us entered, who is that? Even Jesus. In other words, what that means, that verse in Hebrews means, is that Jesus, who is the anchor of our soul, has already entered into heaven. He's the anchor, and where is he? He's already in heaven. Well, since the anchor is already safely harbored in heaven, that means that the ship is guaranteed a secure resting spot in the harbor one of these days as well. I mean, if the anchor is there, guess where the ship is going to go? With the anchor. So we have a guarantee because he is the anchor. So he's the captain. He's also the captain. And he's the anchor. He's the ark. He's the admiral, we could say. I'm trying to do all A's. He's the admiral. He's the anchor. He's the ark. He's the arrival point and the compass and the chart, but I can't get those to start with A's. <laughs> so he, because he's the captain, he knows how to safely guide the ship into the harbor. So he's everything that we need to arrive safely on the other side of life's voyage. But without him as the captain, and without him as our anchor, and as, without him as our arc of safety, there's nothing ultimately that man can count on except aimless direction, and a frightening destination, as we have looked at week after week after week. Without Jesus, there is great cause for the, uh, and uh, cause of fear of, for the storms of life. Before I was saved, I had every reason to be fearful and worried. All right, well, the geological location of the Sea of Galilee, have any of you been there? I know some of you have been there. Uh, raise your hand. You've been there. You've been there. Okay, I've been there. the The location of the Sea of Galilee is positioned such that sudden storms are rather common. They're not uncommon. They are rather common. It can be perfect, just like in this account. It can be perfectly peaceful and calm one minute, and then suddenly a blast of cold air can sweep down on the sea from the surrounding hills. The sea is down low. It's six hundred and eighty uh, feet below sea level. Not as low as the Dead Sea, of course, but it's low and then it's got hills on one side of it. So all of a sudden a blast of cold air can sweep down from those surrounding hills and collide with the hot air rising above the sea itself and create an instant violent storm. And this is just how life is. What a picture of life this is. Things can be calm and smooth and sunny one minute and then one phone call. Can bring on a terrible, terrible storm, or a report from a simple visit to the doctor can bring on a sudden storm, instant dark clouds over all of your sunny skies. And none of us never, ever knows what the next 24 hours might bring, do we? You don't even know really what the next phone call could bring or even as we pull out onto the highway, we don't know. We don't know when a storm can hit us. This is a very accurate picture here, because this storm, I mean, they didn't set out when it was stormy. They set out and it was a nice, pretty night. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we should expect a smooth journey. So if anybody promises, you know, oh, if you become a Christian, everything's gonna be smooth sailing, it's not true. In all storms, God teaches us our need, our our dependence on him he teaches us our own weaknesses apart from him and he teaches us to draw ever closer to him and to his throne of grace storms help us to wean help to wean us from the priorities of this world don't they Boy, when you're in a storm a lot of those priorities out there in life don't seem so important anymore and also storms make us long more and more for the stormless skies of eternal heaven remember earth has no storm that heaven will not heal oftentimes God, God digs the wells of joy with the spade of sorrow there's no ship that has ever sailed a sorrowless sea but the ship with Christ as its captain finds that the everlasting joy at the end of the journey was well worth the sorrows along the way Now, in verse 38, the first part of it, we find uh, that Jesus was sleeping during this storm. And this is a beautiful account of both the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus. This is the only time that the gospel records ever speak about Jesus sleeping. The only time. But this is a picture of the fact that he was not only God, but he was also man, man he had had a as we talked about a very very busy tiring day and his human body was exhausted <clears throat> this is really a beautiful picture here we have the the mighty creator of the whole universe slumbering peacefully in the boat on the beautiful serene sea of galilee even even when the winds whip up you know even when the wild winds swoop down from the gorge of the jordan from the heights of mount hermon to the north and this cyclonic storm hit the sea, what does he continue to do? Rest very peacefully. Even while the disciples were rapidly, I'm sure, panicking and pitching out buckets full of water from the vessel because we are told that it was filled with water to the point where it was in jeopardy, as Luke tells us that. And they're frantically trying to weather the storm. What does he continue to do? Sleep peacefully this is a beautiful picture of the hypostatic union the fact that jesus was 100 percent god and 100 percent man he was god and he was in control but he was also man because he was tired we have that picture when you know he had to pay the taxes to caesar just like any man would have to do he needed to pay his taxes but where did he get the tax money for the taxes <laughs> miraculously out of the mouth of a fish that's a little bit unusual i wish we could get our tax money that way just go fishing um, another time when we have the, a picture of the humanity of, uh, and the deity of Jesus is when he wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept in his humanity for Lazarus and for death in general and what sin has brought to this world. But the next minute, what did he do? Raised him from the dead. It's interesting to notice what woke the Lord up. <laughs> it wasn't the frenzy and the fury of the storm that woke him it was the frenzy and the fury of his children that got him on his feet. You know, isn't that typical of a parent? I, I don't know, but sometimes when I'm really tired, I could sleep through a storm. But if, I remember when my children were little, you know, one little cough or something, I was instantly awake. And that's how our Heavenly Father is. It was his, the the fury of his children, the worry of his children that got him on his feet. Of course, they I'm sure they were shaking him. Now, this had to be quite a storm, because these were seasoned fishermen. I mean, they'd been in storms before, uh, many storms probably, but they were absolutely gripped with fear over this particular storm. This was a, a fearful, I don't have time to get into the words that talk about the storm, but it was really quite a storm. One word is mega, which speaks, the great means mega, mega, big, big storm, and another word used is seismos which speaks of a great shaking. You know, we get earthquakes, seismology, the study of earthquakes. So it was a great storm that was shaking things. And they, they were really afraid that they were going to die. They were afraid that the ship was going down. And they were going to die. Jesus was going to die. All the plans about the new form of the kingdom of heaven were going to die. All was lost. All was lost. And so let's look at their faithless cry to Jesus. What do they say to him in verse uh, 38? Master, carest thou not that we perish? They shake him from his sleep and they say, "Don't you care, Master?" First of all, they say, "Master, don't you care? You know, we're going to perish." Have you ever done this in the middle of a storm? Have you ever acted like this to the Lord, you know, say, "Say, Lord, what in the world is the matter with you? Have you been sleeping?" <laughs> don't you see what I'm going through here you know are, are you just going to let me go down are you going to let me sink? aren't you concerned about my welfare here you, don't just lie there Lord do something do you ever feel that way I know you do we all do And and not only that but do it now okay right now unfortunately many of us are like that <clears throat> There are many Christians who cry and wail and worry and weep in their faithlessness, saying, oh me, woe is me, all is lost, the ship is going down, I'm sinking, I can't hang on anymore, the storm's too rough, you know, wake up, Lord, so you can join us as we go down under. (laughs) But really, you know, we laugh about it, but it is, it is a sinful attitude for a Christian to have, one who calls Jesus Lord to have this attitude. I know we do, but it's wrong, and it really is ridiculous because no ship can go down when Jesus is on board. If the disciples had had the confidence in Jesus that he and his humanity had had in his Father, they would have been calm and collected as he was. He was calm because he knew he was perfectly in the will of, the, of his Father. He knew God was in control. And they were also in God's will, weren't they? They were because the Lord had been the one to tell them to get... He's the one who said, let us get in the boat, you know, and pass over to the other side. They were obediently doing what he had told them to do. Therefore, they had nothing to worry about. If you're you know you're in God's will, there's really no need to worry because he is in control. He's in control anyway, even if you don't, what he, you know, he's going to work what man meant for evil to good anyhow if, you're, if you belong to him. But they really had nothing to worry about, and yet they did worry because their faith was not what it should have been. They all needed, just like you and I, they needed some faith stretching, didn't they? So Jesus stood up, and he showed them once again who he really is. And I just love this. Oh, if I would you not have, I, you know, I say I would love to have been in that boat. I probably I would have been right there with them because I'm very I am afraid of water. I don't like water. The one way I don't want to go is by drowning. I don't like water, and so I would have been I would have been the worst basket case of all of them. I know that because I am not a seasoned fisherman either. <laughs> so everything. Yeah. I wouldn't have gotten in the boat to begin with, probably. No, anyway, who knows. But I would have loved to have seen him do this next thing when he stood up and uh, said, Peace, be still. Mm. So anyway, let me get back to my lesson. In response to the disciples' question, you know, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? He said, through this next action, he said what? Of course I care. I haven't forgotten about you. Of course I care. The disciples had failed to understand that he was still master, even though he was asleep. They still had. You think the uh, the um, I thought about him. The Roman um, centurion would have done if he had been in the boat with them. Remember, he's the one that had great faith. The Lord says to his disciples here, you know, they had no faith. He had great faith. I wonder what he would have done if he had been on this ship during this storm. He knew that the Lord could heal from a distance. I I bet he would have said. Don't panic, guys. Look who's on board with us. No problem. That would have been a neat thing to see what he would have done. But anyway, the disciples still hadn't learned that, uh, you know, even though they had seen him turn water into wine and they had seen him talk fish into their nets, (laughs) even though he didn't say a word to the fish, they hadn't learned yet that he was the Lord of even natural elements, the Lord of nature. But they were about to learn that again. So he stood forth and he faced the howling storm with not one tremor of alarm. Be like standing up in the middle of, you know, Katrina or a tsunami or something. No token of concern for the storm. And in full majesty and authority, he turned to the elements of nature, which of course he had created himself anyway. And he said to the winds of the sky and to the waves of the sea, What? Peace. Be still. And instantly they were still, calm as glass. You know how long it takes for a storm to subside on the water? The winds might stop, but even the ripples of the water, in the water, the t- you know, tide water washing up onto the beach, takes a while after a storm, especially one of this magnitude, to settle down. But instant, calm, like a mirror, just smooth. Literally what he said was, be muzzled. I like that. Be muzzled. He was commanding the winds and the, and the waves and the, and the elements of nature as if they were wild animals that needed to be controlled. Be muzzled. And the elements knew the voice of their creator, didn't they? And they immediately obeyed man what majesty what power who else could he be but God himself so instantly the waves that had been crashing over the sides of the boat and against the boat and into the boat filling it with seawater instantly were gone and the sea of Galilee looked like a piece of glass instantly the winds hushed into peace and a, you know, just as a small infant, when he's given the milk that he desires, instant peace. So he did it, he did it instantly, and he did it as he always does in time. If you're in a storm, going through a storm, he's going to be there just in the nick of time. He was ju- just in time because it, set, uh, it says that the ship was now full. Mark tells us that, and Luke says it was in jeopardy, it was about to go under. But instantly and in time he stopped the storm. Now it's interesting to consider the words used in verse 39 which tell us about this mighty miracle. First of all, the word that he used, um, which is rebuked. Does it say rebuked in our... And rebuked, yeah. That word in the Greek, um, to re- it, it actually literally means to reprove, to rebuke, to um, censor severely. When he arose from his sleep, he rebuked the wind. We're told, and that's the ex- what's interesting is that is the exact same Greek word which is used when he rebukes demons, the same Greek word. And as I said a minute ago, the literal meaning of his words, "Peace, be still," are "be muzzled." And again, these are the same words that he used when he's talking to demons on several occasions in the Gospels. It's very possible that it was the devil who was the cause of this particular storm. Satan could very well have tried to use this little scheme to end the whole redemptive plan of God and prevent the new form of the kingdom from ever starting. Furthermore, the Lord was crossing the sea to do battle with Satan himself because he was about to cast demons out of two demoniacs. And so the enemy may have been, Satan may have been, and it looks like he was, based on these words, trying to prevent the Lord from getting to his final destination. I mean, he would, it would be a great thing if Satan could sink not only the Lord, but all his disciples too, and be done with all of them. But although this storm might have been Satan's doing, as some of our storms of our lives may be, yet he was only permitted to produce this storm through through the permissive will of God, God knew that He could use this storm for His own glory. So He allowed the devil to stir up a storm so that He could, that He could, um, His Son could teach His disciples some uh, another lesson in faith. So the Lord rebuked the storm, but He didn't stop His rebuke there. When He rebuked the storm, He didn't stop because the greatest danger for His plans his redemptive plan and his and his kingdom here on earth did not lie in the heart of the storm the greatest danger for his kingdom lied laid in the hearts of his uh, disciples who re- had responded to this test upon them with what a lack of faith So, in asking his disciples, and this is in verse 40, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? He was patiently rebuking them, reminding them of who he is, of his person and his word. They had just heard him teach of a kingdom that was going to grow from the size of a mustard seed to a tree. You know, they had just heard him talk about the great influence, externally and internally, that his kingdom would have on the entire world. Did they think that this whole plan would be permitted by God to sink to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? Everything he had just taught them was going to be wiped out because of this one storm. Did they think that God was going to allow the Messiah, who he had promised the world for hundreds and hundreds of years, was God going to allow him to drown? in a Galilean storm? Did they forget the power and the authority of Christ that they had repeatedly seen was his through the many miracles that he had already performed? Had they forgotten his words just a little while earlier when he had said what? Let us pass over. Did he say, come on, boys, let's go get into the ship and all die? Let's all die together. Did he say that? Or did he say, let us pass over unto the other side. His promise was what? That they were going to pass over to the other side of the sea. And that promise included all of them, you know, in that us. He didn't say, some of you aren't going to make it. You know, us, we're all going to make it. He didn't promise an easy trip, did he? He didn't promise them an easy trip, but he did promise that all of them would arrive at their final destination. He said, pass over, not pass under. (laughs) Furthermore, they should not have been afraid because the Lord himself was with them. That's the biggest factor. You know, I would rather, and I can honestly say this, I would rather be in a storm with Jesus than be in a calm without him. Wouldn't you? No matter how violent the storm I'd still rather be in it with Jesus than outside of, you know, in a calm without him. You know, true safety is not the absence of the storm, but the presence of the Savior. The disciples' fear was a direct result of their lack of complete faith in him. They still had not understood with faith that he was indeed the master of everything. And they're going to have to keep learning this again and again and again. You know, they'll learn it when, he, when they look at just a few loaves of bread and fish and say, well, you know, how in the world are you going to feed all this multitude? It, it's, we're dense, just like them, where it takes us a lot of lessons in life to finally understand he is in control. He's the master of everything. He is the captain. He is the admiral. Go as high as you want. He is it. He is all in all. He is king of kings. Fear and faith are mutually exclusive of one another. Where there is fear, and I know I just admitted I'm afraid of water, so I know I'm speaking to myself. Where there is fear, there cannot be much faith in Jesus as master over everything. The greater the fear, the less our faith in Christ. Fear occurs when we look at the storm and not at the Savior, doesn't it? Just like Peter learned later on. Fear is caused when we look at our circumstances. And not at his control. Faith involves taking Jesus Christ at his word. It's not just—it's not enough just to read his word. We must make—we must take the words of his word into our very heart, and our soul, and our mind, in our everyday life, and we must learn to live in faith upon them. Jesus had said that they were going to pass over to the other side. Now they heard him say those words, but they really didn't believe those words when they were tested by a storm. Do we really believe Christ's words to us that say he is in control? When we say that, do we really believe it, that he is sovereign and that he is in control and that we are sure to arrive safely at our destination? Oh sure, a lot of us believe that, But in the middle of a storm here on life, you know, oh, I'm going to get to heaven, but I don't know that he can handle this storm I'm going through right now. (laughs) If we really, really believe the words that he's sovereign and he's sufficient and he's in control, we shouldn't fear any storms that come our way. Now, we don't ask for them and we don't like them, but we can have peace even in the midst of them, right? We should, and we should always have, we should always understand, we should... Not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Application of the word to our heart is so important, and it's what really gives us peace in our souls regardless of what's happening. Well, furthermore, the disciples, I'm almost through, the disciples should have not feared because they saw that Jesus himself was at peace. That fact alone should have comforted them and encouraged them. He was able to sleep in the midst of the storm because he was secure in his faith, in his heavenly father, and he was secure. I've already said that he knew, you know, he was in God's will. And they should have followed his example. It says in Psalm 4, 8, I will lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. You think of that verse when you go to bed at night? I do many times because I'm alone a lot. My husband is a traveling salesman he's gone a lot. He's probably been gone from me more days than he's been with me during our marriage, and I live way out in the woods. And so I think about this. You know, People say, aren't you scared when you go to sleep at night, especially now with the empty nest and everything? No, the Lord's in control, and I just lay my head down in safety and go to sleep and say, well, Lord, it's up to you. The purpose of this miracle was accomplished. That's good news, because the faith of the disciples was increased. They were now more afraid of him (laughs) than they had been of the storm. They were more afraid of him. Uh, They had never witnessed such a supernatural display of his power before. I mean, they'd seen him raise a dead man, but I think this this got their attention even more than that. This was amazing. This is nature obeying him. Well, I think it's amazing for death to obey him, too. But it's not surprising that they were afraid here because they were in the presence of their creator. You know, we, we've seen reaction of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he said, woe is me, I'm, you know, I'm undone. And we, we've uh, read of, of Job who says, you know, I repent in dust and ashes when he finally got a glimpse of who God was. But the disciples were suddenly aware of, of the presence of God with them. And they were terrified by his display of power and authority that they had just witnessed. They could only look at one one another and say, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the the sea obey him? So there was great gain in this storm because the disciples now could only marvel at the majesty of, of Jesus. They came through the storm with greater faith, didn't they? Because now they had enough understanding of his true person and his power to fear him. And Proverbs one seven tells us that the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of knowledge. The storm had accomplished its job. Contrary to Satan's purpose, it strengthened the roots of this little mustard plant that was just beginning to, to bloom. What Satan had meant for evil, God had meant for good, and that is the price, precisely the way that he uses storms in our lives as well. Well, whether we, bring the, so whether we bring the storms upon ourselves, whether the result of persecution for our faith, or whether a storm is chastening from a loving God, or whether a storm is the result of living you know, just living in a sin-cursed world where we do have things like hurricanes and tornadoes, etc., or if it's a direct satanic attack, or a storm of God's own design for our additional spiritual growth. Whatever the reason for the storm, the important thing is to trust in the captain of the ship. And if Jesus has been invited to stand at the helm of your heart, then you never need fear any storm. No matter how rough the seas might get, he is there with you. Hasn't he said he will never leave us? nor forsake us, no matter how rough the seas may get. And the roughest storm of all is when we pass over to the other side. We go through the veil of death, and yet he is there with us even then, isn't he? He will never leave us. He and remember, he's the anchor, and he's already anchored in the harbor. So we will safely arrive. Now I want to close by telling you that this whole miracle was actually a litter literal fulfillment of an old testament prophecy so would you turn real quickly to psalm 107 this event had actually been predicted by the psalmist in psalm 107 verses 23 to 31 and i'll just read them because they're self-explanatory and then we'll close in prayer psalm 107 starting at verse 23, where David said, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits' end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help thou, O oh Lord, our unbelief. Although we don't want to say it, we don't want to pray it, but we do say, Lord, try us and test us and prove our faith until each of us As a total, peaceful, confident trust in both your sovereignty over our lives and your sufficiency for our lives. May we not only invite you to captain our ship, to be the pilot of our ship, to be at the helm of our hearts, but may we have faith in in your authority and power to guide us through the storms of life safely to the end of our voyage, impress on our hearts all that we have heard from your word today and help us to really truthfully apply these lessons to our own lives so that we can be more effective testimonies for our Savior, so that we can show people we truly do have solid faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the captain of our ship. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.